0: John chapter 3, we'll look at these first eight verses where Jesus interacts with Nicodemus and says something that is so stunning and so shocking that Nicodemus can't even grasp it and comprehend what he's meaning. Starting in the first verse of the third chapter. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Father, thank you for your glorious, beautiful, majestic, saving word. And Father, we pray now that as we stand here in your presence, as I stand here, as we sit here in your presence, that you would make your word alive. That these would no longer be just black ink letters on a white page, but they would be the living, breathing words of life. That we would be born of God, born anew, again this morning or for the first time. And that by your spirit, we would know you and worship you. We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus and you have this contrast here at the beginning of chapter 3 with the end of chapter 2. Jesus has just had this confrontation with the Pharisees over his cleansing of the temple at the end of chapter 2, and then John records here in chapter 3 that Nicodemus came to Jesus after that. Now, we know that John doesn't write chronologically in his gospel, but instead picks themes and ideas and puts them together together without much concern for the chronology of when they actually occurred. And so this incident with Nicodemus probably happened before the cleansing of the temple in Jerusalem. But irrespective, the reason he has it here is this stark contrast of the Pharisees who wouldn't even acknowledge that Jesus was anything in the previous verses with Nicodemus coming to him and calling him rabbi. At least Nicodemus was willing to acknowledge that he's something different and something special. And Nicodemus being one of the Pharisees and the rulers of the Jews understood what he was saying when he called Jesus rabbi. At the very least, he understood this guy's different. And he even says so by saying, we know that you can't possibly do the things you do with your miraculous signs and wonders if you were not coming from God. It's a contrast between the Pharisees and their arrogance in the previous chapter and Nicodemus's humility in this chapter. And it's no coincidence that John records it happening at night. Now, many people are tempted to think that John recording that Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night is part of Nicodemus trying to, you know, under the cover of darkness, slip into Jesus' hut and sit down with him and talk to him without any of the Pharisees or the other people knowing, because he's really sort of of clandestinely going there. And that may be true, but that's not John's purpose for calling it night. John has multiple illusions that he's creating here by calling it night when Nicodemus comes to Jesus. The darkness alludes not to not seeing as an image of spiritually not seeing. And Nicodemus' own words show that he doesn't fully see Jesus by calling him a rabbi. The great I am is standing and sitting rather in front of Nicodemus and he merely calls him rabbi. It was also a very spiritually and politically dark time in Israel when Jesus and Nicodemus sit down across the table from each other. Nicodemus's own eyes have this limited vision at this moment. He only can see certain things that he doesn't make sense to him. And he doesn't understand this. He doesn't understand that. He doesn't understand who Jesus is. Who are you? Is All this is driven by this lack of seeing and understanding. Because as in the physical world at night, Nicodemus can see something in Jesus, but he cannot see well enough to understand what or who Jesus is. We all understand this. We go outside at night in the darkness and I can see something moving in the bushes or the trees or in the shadows, but I can't see well enough to make it out. And John is drawing this illusion that Nicodemus and even the disciples are in the same moment. It's the darkness of not being able to see fully. And yet they can see there's something there, something that's not normal, something that's different. Nicodemus's limited vision is even apparent in his identification of Jesus as a teacher from God. Nicodemus can't see Jesus because of all the darkness that Nicodemus is living in. But Nicodemus' darkness isn't completely dark. There's enough light in Nicodemus' life to see that Jesus is something different, something special, Something that draws him out into the darkness to investigate who Jesus is, to see who he is, to to try and find out for himself who Jesus is. He can't be just dismissed like all the other Pharisees want to dismiss him because he does these signs and these wonders that couldn't be done if he was not coming from God. And then Jesus says these words to Nicodemus. Nicodemus asked Jesus, who are you? That's the implied question in Nicodemus' statement to Jesus. And Jesus' answer to the question of who are you? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Wait, how's that an answer to who are you? It's an answer because Jesus is cutting through all the perfunctory questions that Nicodemus has. Questions that aren't quite irrelevant, but almost irrelevant. Who am I? That's the irrelevant question, Nicodemus. The relevant question is, are you born again? That's the question, Nicodemus. And Jesus says here, truly, truly, or here's a pro tip for you. Just like when your mother uses your full name to get your attention... Whenever you hear Jesus in the Bible go truly, truly, it's time to wake up and pay attention because whatever's coming next out of his mouth is really, really important. And you do not want to miss it. And then he's born again, or is he born from above? See, the word and the grammatical structure in the original is very ambiguous here that John uses. Jesus could have said born again, or he could have said born from above. In fact, when I was translating this in the first time through, I even translated it as from above in my first reading because that's the most common use of that word. And the answer is yes. Born again from above. John's implying both words. In fact, we could even say that the best translation of this moment, although it would be awkward... Would be truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is reborn from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John is just feeling this whole passage. In fact, this whole chapter just continues to drip with double meanings. It just continues to evoke ideas that just can't be confined and understood with a single word or sentence. And then this whole idea of seeing the kingdom. John utilizes the darkness and seeing as a metaphor for spiritual seeing and knowing. It's not just that Nicodemus can't see. He can't understand. He can't know. Because Jesus' word here is you cannot see the kingdom of God. And then in a few verses later, he says to Nicodemus, if you aren't born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You can't enter into a doorway, you can't enter into a place that you can't see the entrance to it. Well, I mean, it's true, we can stumble into stuff, but that usually ends badly. I don't know about you, but every time I stumble into a place that I wasn't really looking for, it always ends badly. But here the idea is you're looking for the kingdom of God, but you can't enter it unless you can see the doorway to the kingdom. And Nicodemus's limited vision is illustrated again here in his, his response to Jesus. Like, you have to be born twice? What do you mean, Jesus? How in, the, how in the crazy hairiness am I supposed to get back into my mom's womb again as a grown adult man? I mean, look, Nicodemus is probably in his late 30s, early 40s. He started to go from barrel-chested to barrel-belly, right? And like, how am I supposed to get back in my mom's womb when I'm this big? What the what are you talking about, Jesus? It makes no sense, that's right, it makes no sense because he's still thinking in the physical while Jesus is speaking in the spiritual. However, in Nicodemus' defense, he isn't completely off base. You see, to be born again is to be reborn, to be made into something or more accurately someone new 1 Corinthians 5:17 behold the old is gone if any man is in christ he is a new creation behold the old is gone the new has come see we are not the same person after we are born again we are different in our whole person in our whole mind our heart soul and our bodies I wouldn't be surprised that if at some point in the distant future, science and technology discovers that a person's DNA changes after their conversion. And even if that's not true, we know factually that our DNA will change at our glorification. And when Jesus talks about being born anew, it isn't just being reborn here in this world, in this life. It is the process that starts at our conversion and then moves forward until the final day of history and time on this earth when we are remade into our glorified bodies with him. This is more than just getting rid of achy joints and muscles that fail over time and sickness that just consumes us. This is more than that at the glorification of our bodies to being made into what we were supposed to be in the Garden of Eden. Our glorification is more of Eden remade than it is just getting rid of these things we know as our bodies today. And Jesus makes this odd statement in reply to Nicodemus that you have to be born of water and the Spirit to be able to enter the kingdom of God. This is a whole person rebirth. But why does Jesus say water and spirit? What's, what, what, what? What are you talking about? Well, to answer that question, we have to go back to the Old Testament. Turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 33. Many of you will recognize this passage almost immediately when we start to read it. It's probably the most often quoted, most memorized passage in Jeremiah. Chapter 33, the first nine verses. Here in Jeremiah, we're in this section where he's talking, God is talking about that he will bring his people and take them back to himself. Remember, Jeremiah was the prophet right before the exile. Part of the book of Jeremiah occurs before the Babylonian conquering of Jerusalem and other parts of it occur after the conquer of Jerusalem, the first conquering of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. And here Jeremiah's telling everybody, look, God's had enough of you people. He's just fed up with your idolatry and your fake worship. And so the Babylonians are coming and you're you're not going to be saved. You're going to go away. But you will be restored. And then we come to this middle section of that long treatise that Jeremiah gives about the restoration of his people. In chapter 33, the first nine verses. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time while he was still shut up in the court of the guard. Thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed it to establish it. The Lord is his name. Call to me and I will answer you and I will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel concerning the houses of the city and the houses of the kings of Judah that were torn down to make a defense against the siege mounds and against the sword. They are coming in to fight against the Chaldeans, and to them with the dead bodies of men. While I strike down in my anger and wrath. For I have hidden my face from this city because of all their evil. Behold, I will bring it to health and healing. I will heal them and reveal to them abundance of prosperity and security. I will restore the fortunes of Judah. And the fortunes of Israel and rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all their guilt of their sins against me. I will forgive all their guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city shall be to me a name of joy, of praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do to them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. He will; It is God himself who will cleanse them and restore them. And that is just the setup for what Jesus is really talking about. The full grasp and the full meaning of being born by water and spirit comes from Ezekiel chapter 36. Turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 36. Just a handful of pages to the right of where you are in Jeremiah chapter 33. Remembering that Ezekiel takes place in the land of what we know today as Iraq. as part of the exile period, just as the beginning of returning of to Jerusalem by Cyrus. And we come to chapter 36 in the book of Ezekiel. And I'll start reading in verse 22. Again, this is what God is saying about how he's going to restore the people and restore the land. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when though through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and carefully to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant, and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquity and your abominations. Is it not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God? Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded in all your ways, O house of Israel. See, Jesus is telling Nicodemus in this moment that being Born again of water in the Spirit is the fulfillment of Ezekiel chapter 36. This is the time where you are cleansed with holy water and you are given a new Spirit. Joel chapter 2 is brought to its complete fruition. And how do I know this? Because what's the very next thing that occurs in the book of Ezekiel? The valley of dry bones where Ezekiel stands and at the command of the Lord prophesies over these dead bones, dried, white, dead bones. And they come to life and put on new flesh and live and stand as an army. This is the moment when Jesus fulfills all of that, sort of. Because it's not completely fulfilled the way we would understand fulfilling it until Acts chapter 2. When the Spirit comes and fills all the believers and everything promised in Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Joel and everywhere else that promises the Spirit of the Lord and dwelling within his people and putting his Spirit upon them comes to its complete fruition. But before that occurs, the blood of Jesus has to be spilt on a Roman cross or a stony hill outside of Jerusalem. When Jesus says that you must be born of water and spirit, in a sense, he's really saying, without saying it, you have to be born of blood and spirit. It is the blood of Jesus that cleanses us and washes us clean, that sets us free from all our iniquities. And it is his spirit coming in us and regenerating and renewing us so that we are reborn from above that makes it possible for us to really Live with him. How do you take the divine holiness power, cosmic power of God and stick it in a human body? How do you do that? How does the human... Forget about how you actually get it there. How do you put it there and it just stay there and not destroy the human flesh? There is only one way and that is for the new flesh to be reborn from above so that it is capable of of holding the divine spirit of God. This is where Jesus is going. This is what he's saying. And when he brings in this idea of flesh and spirit, what is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit, he's just saying this, that you can't create something new from the same old stuff. You and I cannot go around with our same old broken heart-ness and expect to get a new heart from it. You can't take the same old stuff and create something new. No, broken, fallen, human flesh will only create more broken, fallen, human flesh. Look, I'm a grandfather. You all see my daughter and my grandchildren. Let me tell you, that this broken heart flesh created broken heart flesh. I saw it firsthand in the many years that she lived in my home. And I see it again even in the short days that my granddaughter has been living in my home. Broken heart flesh just creates more broken heart flesh. It takes something otherworldly to recreate humans into what was lost in Eden. Look, In the Garden of Eden, before the fall, Adam and Eve possessed the ability to sin, but they also possessed the ability not to sin. What? You've got to be kidding. What was that like? Be like, really, I just would like love like 15 minutes with Adam and Eve sometime. What what was it like to be in the garden, you know, before the fall and, and be able to not sin? What was that like? We have no concept of that. None of us have ever in our whole life known what it feels like to not be able to sin, to actually be able to say no to sin. But Adam and Eve did until they didn't. And then when they fell at the disobedience of God's word and commands, they lost the ability to not sin, They fell from that state of being able to sin and not being able to sin to being able to sin and nothing else. And for thousands of years, humanity lived under that reality that we are not able to not sin. We have no way of saying no. And then comes Jesus and the rebirth through regeneration and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, and we get a piece of Eden back. We go from not being able to not sin to being able to resist sin sometimes because of the indwelling power of the Spirit and the being reborn and remade with a new heart. When Ezekiel talks about this, when God tells Ezekiel that he'll take the heart of stone out of man and put the heart of flesh in, he means, I'll give you back a heart that is capable Of not sinning, but only partial. We don't fully get it back the full, like here's here's Adam and Eve before the fall with their ability not to sin, right? And so here here we are before our regeneration and rebirth is just able to do nothing but sin and we move up a notch by the power of his spirit. And we actually are able to obey him and do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Sometimes. Until that day of glorification. You understand? We're going to go from where we are, from where we were, faith in Christ, rebirth in the new spirit, to where we are, and then we're going to go beyond where Adam and Eve were. Because Adam and Eve, before the fall, were able to sin and able not to sin. And after their glorification, when we finally get to the fulfillment of everything promised in salvation through the blood of Jesus, we go to not able to sin. There'll be no capacity within us for disobedience and rebellion against our God on that day. Oh, what a glorious, beautiful day that will be. John writes later in the, Same chapter I quoted from during the Lord's Supper, John chapter 6, verse 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And then Paul tells us in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of work done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, purpose clause, so that for the purpose of being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Think about that for a moment. The purpose of our renewal and regeneration is to become heirs of God, to become children of God, to become those born of God. Not, as John says in chapter 1, by the will of the flesh or by the will of man or because of your ethnicity, but because of his redeeming love for us. You And me, his great, amazing love chose us to be his heirs. He chose to make us a part of his family out of his redeeming love for us. And only God can do this. I wish I could do this on my own. Because then I would be in complete control of everything. Or so I think. But God does this out of his great love for us. I mean, this is marvelous and astounding, shocking, stunning that he would love us this much. And Jesus goes on to say, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now, what's important here is when we get to verse seven, this conversation changes. This conversation goes from Jesus to Nicodemus and Nicodemus to Jesus to Jesus and the rest of the world, because the you right here in the middle of verse seven is plural. Do not marvel that I said to you all, you must be born again for the wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. We see the effects of the wind. You can feel it, but we can't see it or predict it. See, and John here is using the word play on the idea of wind and spirit because the same word is used in the original for wind or for spirit. Just as he was playing on this idea, this double meaning of born again or born from above, so also he plays on this double meaning of wind and spirit, the original wind and spirit word. John is making this word play to emphasize the metaphor of the wind representing the Spirit of God. Jesus is setting up this stunning and shocking work that he and the Father are doing. Just as the wind is mysterious and unpredictable, so the saving work of Jesus Christ our Lord is unpredictable. Not only is his Messiahship, not, excuse me, let me try that again. Not only is his Messiahship going to be unexpected, but he is really going to blow their minds when salvation through Christ comes to the Gentiles. I mean, Poor Nicodemus. You can almost feel in this passage, his poor little brain is about to explode. And Jesus hadn't even said nothing about the Gentiles getting saved either. Just dealing with being reborn. This is done by the Spirit. I don't know what it's like to have the Spirit of God inside of me. I'm fallen flesh that's never known anything but sin. I've never been able to obey God. And I'm going to get the spirit of God? What? I don't understand. We understand, don't we? I mean, as tempting as it is to be sort of intolerant of Nicodemus, we really understand what it's like to be Nicodemus, don't we? Maybe you remember what it was like before the Spirit did its work of rebirth in you and you trusted in Christ. And you remember what it was like to try and comprehend comprehend this idea that the divine Spirit of God was coming to dwell inside of me. And uh, where's the eject button? Let me out of this. Nicodemus experiences the same thing that you and I experienced, that we all experienced, that I experienced this week approaching this passage. A lot of the times the Spirit just kind of opens things up for me and I see stuff, but it's like a big five-gallon bucket being dumped on top of my head, right? This week, it was like sitting on the beach of Revelation at the edge of the surf. And with every minute, a new wave came in until they were above my head. And that's what I hope is your experience this day, from the start of our worship service to this very moment, this just just continuous wave after wave of revelation of God by His Spirit showing you and seeing who you are and who He is and who you can be. And let me make this clear. When I talk about who you can be, I'm not talking about the better you. I'm talking about a brand new you. I'm not interested in trading a Yugo for a Kia. I want a Yugo for the Lexus. So what do we do with all this? We are like Nicodemus as we come to Christ. Because of the darkness in our souls, we can see something is there with Jesus. But we cannot see it well enough to make it out and understand what it is or who he is or... Who is this Jesus character? What's going on here? Only by the supernatural light of the Spirit illuminating the darkness can we see Jesus and understand Him. The Spirit reveals all of this. Like Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, I didn't learn nothing this week that it was because I was smart. It was because the Lord Jesus chose to reveal it. And the same is true for every one of us. It will not be because you're so smart that you discern the ways of God. It will be because His Spirit reveals it to you. We are not who we were. Look, you cannot be born again and be the same person that you were. Yes, it's true that vestiges of the old person remain and will take much sanctification to eradicate. You can just ask my daughter, Grace. She will be easily able to tell you of old vestiges that still need to be eradicated within her father. Yet from the moment of salvation, we are fundamentally changed in our hearts and our souls and our mind. A change that everyone can see. Look, only the spirit can bring about this rebirth. You and I cannot reinvent ourselves. See, the man who tries to reinvent himself, he is still the same man, just a new coat of paint. When you listen to the people in the culture and you listen to these different experts talk about reinventing yourself, all they're talking about doing is putting a new coat of paint on the same old car. This is not what happens with the Spirit. The Spirit transforms us because a divine nature of God is Transplanted within us. We are a very different entity than we were in our fallen flesh alone. We are born of God not just by His will but by His very DNA transplanted within us. New birth in Christ is a result of the Spirit and it manifests itself. As the confession of faith in Jesus Christ's work on the cross and the declaration of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. What is the identifying mark of a Christian? One thing and one thing only. Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior. His work on the cross has set them free from the bonds that hold them. Lastly, Trying to predict the spirit's next move is as impossible as predicting the wind's next move. Yes, with modern meteorology, we have certain expectations and understandings about how the wind works that they didn't experience in the first century. Yet even still, I can stand in my backyard, which has a pretty wide open space, like most of Colorado, and the wind blowing, like it always does, And the weather forecast saying that the winds are going to be 15 to 20 miles an hour from the southwest. And I'm standing there, and they're blowing from the southwest. And so I'm like, okay, I know what the wind's doing. It's blowing from the southwest. And then in the blink of an eye, it's blowing from the west, and I'm laying on the ground. Because I'm leaning into the southwest wind, and all of a sudden it shifts and changes without any warning. I had no way of predicting the wind was suddenly going to shift from the southwest to the west. And now I'm laying on the ground looking like a fool. In the same way, we cannot predict the Spirit's movement, but we can see the effect it is having. Just as we watch a tree branch sway in the wind and predict it's going to fall, so we can also see the Spirit working in the lives of others and see they are going to respond. What do you do when you see someone's being affected by the wind of the Holy Spirit? You feed that sucker. That's what you do. How do we feed the Holy Spirit? We feed the wind of the Spirit with prayer. The Holy Spirit goes where the Holy Spirit wants to go. The Holy Spirit does what the Holy Spirit wants to do. You and I have no control over it, but we certainly can affect it. We can spur it on with our prayers. In fact, sometimes I think those are the most powerful tools and weapons in our armory and arsenal. is the ability to pray and fuel the fire and the wind of the Holy Spirit. In fact, sometimes I think that's the only thing we have. That's a real weapon. I mean, yes, we have the word, right? The word is clearly powerful and can divide asunder both heart, mind, and soul. But even that seems to need the working of the spirit. The wind of the spirit to carry it along. Feed the wind. Yes, the spirit rebirths us. Most of us in this room know what it's like to be reborn. And while ontologically, I know that's a big word, but meaning in our being and who we are, it occurs once. But there is another way in which it occurs every day and every hour every time we approach the word and we approach the throne of heaven, we should be hoping for a continued regeneration and rebirth that takes us a little bit closer than we were to that state and that mindset and that capacity to not sin, to obey what the Father is calling us to do. Whether that calling by the Spirit is something as simple as don't pitch a fit because you can't get what you want. Or whether it is follow the Spirit into the darkness and shine light into the darkness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your mercy. Thank you, Father, for opening the door to the kingdom of heaven for us to be able to see it and walk through it. And I pray, Lord, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, this day would be a day of salvation, of renewed salvation, regeneration, and rebirth. For anyone who does not know you, but for all of us that do, that it would be a a continued regeneration and rebirth into a deeper and richer knowing of you and transforming of ourselves into your likeness. In Jesus' name, amen.